head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. Okay, so that's lots, and this is important, important stuff. Um, And I'll stop here to just mention that there is a, a very logical progression in the way that this statement is laid out. From starting with Scripture, instead of starting with God, because from our standpoint, we have to start somewhere, and our authority, our way of knowing about God is through Scripture. And then it just lays things out so that one idea follows the other. And so now that we've looked at the covenants and how they work, now we set on top of that uh, layer uh, Christ's work as mediator. And specifically this... uh, issue of him being prophet, priest, and king is especially fascinating and meaningful. Because again, it's building on Old Testament foundations. So let's work through this bit by bit here. So up to footnote one. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them, to be the mediator between God and humanity. Okay, Who wants to take Isaiah 42? We have a volunteer to read that. Andrew? And then who wants to take 1 Peter 1? Who's got that? Tim? Okay. And before we get into that, uh, see who's paying attention. The covenant within the Trinity... The three persons of the Trinity covenanting with one another to redeem a mass of humanity. What was that covenant called? I know Lydia knows. Or she did a few weeks ago. Anyone remember what this covenant is called? There we go. Very good. Where did that come from? Ty. All right. Bonus points for my cousin. If you're a dairy farmer, you have to listen to podcasts in the barn, and then you learn stuff. All right. Uh, Whoever had uh, Isaiah 42, go ahead and read it. Okay. So this is a messianic prophecy here, looking forward to Jesus, the servant uh, whom God upholds, his chosen... He delights in him. He's put his spirit on him. And this maybe should recall to mind as we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew. You see how all these things happened? Right? Uh, Jesus is baptized. God's spirit comes down like a dove on him. Uh, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? So this is all playing out exactly as Isaiah saw it, which makes sense because God is ultimately the author of all Scripture. Okay? Um, And then who wants to follow that up with 1 Peter 1? Who had that? Tim? Very good. So again, Christ is foreknown before the foundation of the world. And we've discussed this, but this is so important to 
understand well. Foreknown before the foundation of the world. Does that mean God looked down the tunnel of time? He looked, he foresaw, as he looked at the, at the future, he saw Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, doing his ministry, and God says, oh, I see what's going to happen there. Okay? Does God foreknow in that way? Does God foreknow by seeing the future? No. Can we all say that together? No. <laughs> Does God have foreknowledge based on observing and learning the future? No. Okay. Very important. How does God gain his foreknowledge? And even there, I probably misstepped. I shouldn't say gain his foreknowledge. How does God possess foreknowledge? What's that? He creates, he creates it all. Right? He knows it like the author knows his story. Yep. That is very true, right? And that's why I even slipped up using imprecise language to say God gained foreknowledge would make it sound like he didn't possess it at one point in time. So that's on me. Okay? God does not gain foreknowledge. And again, if God's foreknowledge comes from observing the future, that means there was a point in time at which God did not know this. God's learning. He's in the system with us. Processing it, okay? This is becoming, once again, very popular, even in evangelical circles, and I would suggest very strongly that this is a wrong way to view God's knowledge. God does not learn things. God does not... uh, see things ahead of time, God writes the story, and on that basis, he has foreknowledge. Okay? Because he wrote the story. Yeah, and I've actually, it's interesting you mentioned that. Did everyone hear Joe Lynn? She said, maybe that analogy falls short because sometimes writers are surprised at what their characters do. Um, which, probably fair enough. I've never written a novel or fiction, so I, I don't know how characters take a life of their own. But I'm always thinking, well, you're in charge. <laughs> you get to decide what she does. But I get it. So, fair enough. Uh, so, even if that analogy falls short somewhere, God is not surprised by what the characters do. The characters do not have an independent life of their own. Their life is derived from the author. So because God is not in the system, he's outside of the system with us, uh, that also helps us to not see God's sovereignty in terms of pure force. A lot of people think of God as the white ball on a pool table, and we're all the other balls, and so the only way we move is by being displaced by something more powerful than us. And then people have objections to God's sovereignty because if that was the way it worked, the more freedom God has, the less freedom I have and then we're all just a bunch of robots and we've got no say in the matter because it's just by compulsion or force. But that's not how God's sovereignty works. God is outside of the system. So there's no conflict. Okay? What, what creation does, God is doing. Not by force, but through the agency of people. Okay? So that, that objection is only a problem if God is in the system with us. And he just has to be bigger and stronger than us inside the system. 
So again, he is foreknown before the foundation of the world, meaning that redemption in Christ is plan A or plan B? Plan A. Plan A. Okay, Jesus is not an afterthought. It's not like the fall happened and then God said, Oh boy, what am I going to do to fix this up? Okay, how, how am I going to make... How am I going to get control of this situation again? And then he sees, oh, it's kind of handy that I'm triune. You know what I bet we could do? I bet we could send the second person of the Trinity to earth to satisfy my wrath against that sin. And then, didn't it turn out great? There's also this Holy Spirit here with us that's going to apply that redemption to individual people. Okay? That's not the way it works. God is triune by his very nature And therefore, the story that he writes in human history is the way it is because God is triune. Okay? Very important to get this order correct. Okay? So before the foundation of the earth, before the fall, before anything was created, even before light and dark were there, Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world. Just in his very being. That's who he is. He can't not be. God the Son. He can't not be the Savior of the world. That's who he is. That's part of his essence. Discussion on that. Make sense? Questions? Bad analogies that fall short? Yeah, did everyone hear what Alfred just said? That it's, it's helpful to remember that God exists outside of time. Time itself is a created thing. And I, we've mentioned it before, but time is one of the weirdest things you can think of. What is it? Albert Einstein said, time is something everyone knows what it is until they have to stop and answer what it is. We all know what time is instinctively. Define it now. Is it motion? Some people have suggested that time is motion. But there's lots of problems with that. What is it? What is time? Time is something clearly that's operating on us, but it's a created thing. And so Alfred's point is correct. God isn't in the system with us waiting for the series of events. God is. I am who I am. I am who I am. And that's why last week I said that my salvation occurred before the world began. And my salvation happened 2,000 years ago. And my salvation happened when I was a little kid, right? Looking one way, it's from my perspective. Another way, it's Christ's work in history. In another sense, it's God's decree. Okay, but when we, when we limit God and put him in the system with us, we get all kinds of objections about his sovereignty and about his foreknowledge and about his predestinating work and, and so forth. Uh, and those, those problems are largely resolved when we see God's not in the system. He's not the biggest fish in the ocean that has to push things around to get his way. He's the writer of a story. Who knows how the story's going? Let's keep moving. 
God chose him to be a prophet, priest, and king. And let's stop there and break this down. Acts 3.22, who wants to take that? Caleb? Go ahead, once you've got it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, back up just a little bit. Who remembers? I think it's, oh, it's probably in the footnotes here. Um, I think it's in Deuteronomy 18, maybe. Yes? Well, if you say yes, then I'll take your word for it. Um, Where uh, Moses foretells that a greater prophet than him will rise up from among these people. Okay? A greater prophet than me. And if the Israelites were like us and pretty short-sighted and didn't understand God's long way of operating, it might seem like this is, maybe it's going to be Joshua or someone. Right? And Joshua is another step on the fulfillment, but really Moses is looking at Christ, and we have that on the authority of uh, the New Testament. That's the greater prophet that Moses is looking towards. Okay? And I'll tie this up after we go through all three offices. But do we see how, how is Jesus a prophet? And we're not saying with this that he's just a prophet, but how is Jesus a prophet? What does a prophet do? Foretells? Yep, what else? Preaches? Yep. In a sense, yeah. Well, he's a, he's a, he's a go-between in one sense, yep. Yep. What else? A mouthpiece, yep. Has a message from God, yep. Calls people to repentance, Right? So the prophet, in, in essence, stands with his back to God and his mouth towards the people with a message from God to the people. That's a prophet. Okay? Calls to repentance. There's often predictive prophecy. Um, so prophecy can be predictive. It can also be a calling to repentance. Both definitions are true. Jesus does both. And we'll maybe stop there and tie it together once we look at these other offices. Okay, what about his office as priest? Who wants to go to Hebrews 5? Who wants to read those verses? Howard? I'll I'll get you on the next one. Okay, Howard, you'll know this. What does that sound like from the Old Testament? God's favorite Bible verse. I know you know it. So. Yep. Psalm 110.1. Okay, does everyone remember God's favorite Bible verse? Psalm 110.1. 1? 
It's the most, and I, I say that tongue in cheek. I don't know what God's favorite Bible verse is. Maybe he doesn't have one because it's all his word. But it is the most cited Old Testament passage in the New Testament. At least 19 explicit references to Psalm 110.1. Okay? Today I have begotten you. Sit at my right hand until all your enemies are made your footstool. Okay? Uh, and this is a very clear reference to this. And so there's a couple points to make out here. Okay, so one, we're, we're quoting the Psalms in reference to Jesus. So Jesus is the Son that the Father has begotten. And you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What was different about Melchizedek than the other priests? He was two of them. He was a priest king. Yes, very important. Now, could the Levites, could the traditional Jewish priests, could they hold more than one office? Could they be kings? No, they couldn't. Okay? They could not be, if you were a priest, if you are a Levitical priest, you could not be uh, in the civil arm as a king as well. Melchizedek does both. What else about Melchizedek? No beginning or end. No father or mother. Weird. Okay, what else about him? Was he a Jew? No, he's the king of Salem. Okay, and when he meets Abraham out in, after, uh, after Abram wins a few battles, he meets Melchizedek, and who offers who a sacrifice? So who's the greater? Melchizedek's obviously greater than Abram. Who is this guy? No father or mother. No beginning or end. He's a priest king. And Abram says he's greater than him and offers him a sacrifice. Who is this guy? There's two answers. And I, to use a word picture from David Faherty, my favorite golf commentator, so every time I land on one of these positions, I land like a butterfly with sore feet. Because I, the other argument is always compelling. But, at the very, very, very minimum, Melchizedek is a mysterious, weird guy who is clearly a type of Christ. Okay? We know nothing about him. And so if he's just a regular guy who is a type of Christ, then the having no father or mother is simply a reference to not having any kind of royal genealogy. We don't know much about this guy. He's just a weird guy that shows up in the desert. And that's what we hear about him. And another very real possibility that I would offer is Melchizedek was Christ. This is a Christophany. Jesus came down from heaven once before Bethlehem. And Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. Okay? So this is a sneak preview of the Christ to come. Uh, and so in that view, having no father or mother is more literal. Having no beginning or end is more literal. And it makes sense that he's the king of Salem, because Salem means peace. Weird. Whatever we say about this guy, he's weird, but very important. Okay? And so Jesus is a priest in that order, meaning he's a priest king. And we also have hints at Gentile inclusion now. This isn't just from the Levites. This is a different kind of king, uh, a multiple office holder, uh, with Gentile background, um, 
And I'm never quite prepared to commit to whether this is a type of Christ or whether it is Christ. I don't know. And whenever I read one compelling case for one, then I read for the other, and whoever speaks last kind of has my attention. (laughs) And I'll stop there. Has anyone ever noticed previously how weird Melchizedek is? How bizarre this character is when you read about him in your Old Testament reading? And then Hebrews makes him even more weird but doesn't really answer our questions (laughs) other than he's a forerunner of Christ somehow. Okay? So we've got lots happening here. We've got the psalmist looking at this guy. We've got him filling two offices. We have him as greater than Abram. Um, There's lots happening here. And this is the kind of priest that Jesus is. Okay? Anything else to add on Melchizedek? Comments, discussion, questions, commentary? Yeah. Sorry, I missed that. Yes, he's at minimum he's a type of Christ. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And what's that all about? If I had to, if I'd look at the last five years as I've studied this guy, I'm probably 58% it is Christ. I'm not going to tell anyone dogmatically that it is Christ, because I just don't know. But if I had to guess, I do think this is the second person of the Trinity who came down to the desert to meet Abram. Okay? And if you disagree with me, I'll say, wonderful. You're standing a long tradition of people who disagree with me. But for sure he's a type of Christ. Okay, is that a new thought that this is possibly a Christophany? Is that a Christophany just means an appearing of Christ? Is that a new thought? Is that a new suggestion? Or have you heard that suggestion before? New? Okay. You were in my Sunday school class for years. Ah, oh, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's keep moving. (laughs) Was this a new idea for you, Howard? (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Then it's on me. Who wants to take Psalm 2, verse 6? So now we're looking at Jesus' kingship. Psalm 2, 6. Uncle Steve has that. And who's got Luke 1, 33? Gord. Okay. Psalm 2, 6. Okay, so Jesus here, and Psalm 2 is a significant psalm. Psalm 110.1 is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 2 isn't far behind it. I think I counted 13 references to Psalm 2 in the New Testament. So this theme of Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand until his enemies are defeated, of him being a conquering king, this is a major theme in the New Testament. And frankly, then it seems odd if this is such a major theme in the New Testament. For myself, at least, I had to wonder why was this theme not there? It wasn't present at all in my mind, really. Uh, Jesus is a man of war who conquers his enemies. 
Um, and yet, this is a, evidently a big deal to both the Old and the New Testament writers. And it's largely absent from our thinking, I think. At least it was absent from my thinking. Okay? So Jesus is here a king in Psalm 2. Okay? And Psalm 2 is cited often. Who wants to take Luke 133? Oh, Gord had that, yeah. Okay, so again, what kind of a role is Jesus cast in here? Kingly one? When does his kingdom end? Never. It's a victorious one that lasts forever. Yep. Yeah, you start... Some people have suggested, and I'm not one of these... There are churches that do only psalm singing because only psalms are inspired word of God. Um, and I understand that argument. That's not where I'm at. But people who do sing psalms will say this. Or, and I would actually classify a more classical kind of hymn writing, old and new, in that camp as well, relative to a lot of very repetitive shallower worship music, you get a very different picture of God listening to Bethel and Hillsong than you would listening to King David. Completely different picture. Okay? If you sing the Psalms, you're going to have a Jesus who crushes heads and who conquers and who is furious and angry. Okay? That's the kind of picture you're going to get in your singing. And that's the kind of lyrics that get into your bones. And that's the way you're going to start conceiving of Jesus. A lot of shallow, kind of the repetitive, droning on worship music. Would you ever get a picture that God is angry at his enemies? Would you ever get the idea of a head crusher? No? Would would, would a woman like J.L. be praised in common worship music today? You know, here's a godly woman who drives a spike through a bad guy's head. Let's sing a song of praise to her. Let's rejoice that somebody threw Jezebel out of a tower and she's splattered all over the ground and all that's left of her is her skull once the dogs are done eating her up. Okay? Do you see what a disparity there is between the biblical conception of God and the North American conception of God? It's a pretty different picture. It's a pretty different picture. Okay, and Jesus is that kind of a king. So, we've got prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus holds these three offices. Does anyone know there's, there is a very popular older hymn that incorporates this lyric about prophet and priest and king? Can anyone think of it? I won't sing it because I'm terrible at singing. Praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed redeemer, right? Crown him, crown him, prophet and priest and king, okay? So it's not like this theme is absent from hymnody. It's certainly not. It's there. Um, And it's important because, now look again at the way the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected to one another, okay? We, We talked about the prophets were the mouthpiece of God, with their back turned to God and their mouth giving God's message to the people, a priest is turned the exact opposite way. Right? A priest is like this, I can't believe what these people have done. 
And I'm in charge of them. I'm responsible. God, it's all on me. You need to forgive me. And you need to forgive these people through me. Right? A priest is exactly the opposite. A priest feels the weight of his people on his shoulders. And he goes to God for mediation. Right? Moses feels the weight of the people's sins. Okay? And we need to think covenantally as men even about our own families. Anyone notice that Job asked God for the forgiveness of his children's sins? And a lot of people would say, well, you can't do that. And the Bible would say, well, yes, we're covenantal here, so yes, you can. Okay? Me and Howard just did a book exchange. A couple Doug Wilson books, and I read The Covenant Household. And he made it, well, lots of good points in there. But one that especially struck me was that when men, as covenant leaders, go, and he used the example of pornography, when a man goes to some dark corner to look at pornography, he's taking his wife and his children there with him. That's how covenant headship works. You're saying, God, me, my family is going to the dark corner to go look at pornography, and we're going to all do it together. Why? Because what a man does, his whole family does. That's how it works. Okay? What Israel does is on Moses. What David's children do is on David. Okay? The Bible is covenantal. The Bible is not individualistic like we are. The Bible is covenantal. People are tied together, and there's covenant heads that need to ultimately bear the responsibility. That doesn't mean everything is the man's fault, but it does mean everything is the man's responsibility. Okay? That's what it is to be a priest. And every man, every husband, is a priest of his family. He carries that on his shoulders. God, we sinned again. God, the kids aren't listening again. It's on me. Okay? Doesn't mean it's his fault, but it is his responsibility. And Jesus is the perfect covenant head in this sense. He's the perfect priest. Because did Jesus create any of the mess he took responsibility to come clean up? None of it's his fault. But all of it is his responsibility. Okay? So Jesus is a priest when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's feeling the blow for your sins and for my sins when he does that. He is a priest. Okay? He is atoning for the people. And when Jesus says he felt forsaken, I don't doubt for a minute that he did. Imagine thousands of years and tens and hundreds and millions of people. All that accumulated sin and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to take that. It's on me. Do you think he felt forsaken by God? You bet he did. And he's a king. What does a king do? He rules. Yep. A king rules. What else does a king do? Make laws, yes. King has the right to make laws, absolutely. What's that? Judgments, yes. Yep. He rides into battle first. Okay, interesting. Can I just pick on that for a little bit? If we're picking on people and taking responsibility, we all know about David's uh, failing as a king. We all know about his adultery. We all know about the murder of Uriah. What was David's first problem? 
He stayed home. Israel was out to battle and David's at home. Whoa. How many times have you read that and there was no big flashing red light? Because there should have been. There's a big problem here. The men are out to war and the king's at home gawking at women. Big, big problem. Okay? A real king is the first out in battle. He's the one carrying the flag. He's leading from the front, not leading from the rear. Okay? That's real kingship. That's masculine kingship. The king goes first. Okay? The king leads from the front, not from the rear. David's leading from the rear, and it gets him into trouble. So, thanks for mentioning that. Okay? So now you catalog all these stories that you learned as a kid in the Old Testament, and you know there's this line of prophets... And you know there's this line of priests, and you know there's this line of kings. And if you read the genealogies, all three of those offices seem to actually be a pretty big deal. And then is that the end of the story? Not at all. Those offices are all designed by God meticulously to terminate in Christ. They're all telling stories. The line of priests is telling a story, the line of prophets is telling a story, and the line of kings is telling a story. Often they're how-not-to stories, but sometimes they're how-to stories. Okay? And all these three offices are looking forward to the one who is going to come and take all those offices and terminate them. Okay? So do we have priests and prophets and kings today in the Old Testament sense in the church? And we don't. Okay? Those offices are no longer necessary because Jesus is holding all those offices right now. Okay? So that's what we mean when they're terminated. Again, termination is an important word because to terminate in something means it ends up at its most useful end point. Okay? That means it terminates. So the line of Moses terminates in Jesus. The line of Aaron terminates in Jesus. The line of David terminates in Jesus. He holds those offices fully, finally, and perfectly for eternity. Okay? So we don't need ecclesiastical church kings today. Okay? We don't need a pope. We don't need prophets and priests offering sacrifices anymore because Jesus has filled those roles perfectly once for all uh, and he is ruling in those seats today. And so this threefold office of Christ is an important theme, again, in terms of seeing the harmony and the unity between Old and New Testament. And I'll stop there. Does this three-office paradigm make sense? No. Short answer, no. Long answer, it's complicated. (laughs) Uh, Are there prophets today? Well, I would say no, there are not. If someone uh, called themselves a prophet today, I would want to ask them what they mean by that. uh, The prophetic office, in terms of if someone is willing to be bold, to call for repentance, to, to challenge someone more powerful than them, Is there a rightful way in which we can say that's prophetic? I'd say, yeah, sure, it is. Um, Are there prophets in the sense of receiving new inspired revelation from God? No. No, there's not.
it's, okay, that's a big topic. Um, no, 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 it, it, if you're thinking it, other people are too, so we should discuss it. Yes, and that, in that sense, it carries on. A prophet in the sense of receiving inspired revelation from God, I would say very clearly that office has terminated. Okay, this book is finished. So prophecy is obsolete in that sense. Now that doesn't mean God doesn't work supernaturally anymore. Um, and I would even say, in, in, a, in a limited sense, I would look at Abram Kuyper coming from the Netherlands in 1898 to deliver a series of lectures at Princeton Seminary, and in 1898, Abram Kuyper, who was a trained philosopher and prime minister and theologian and an all-around remarkable man, uh, he looked at the philosophy Americans were accepting, and he called transgenderism from 1898. He said, here's where you guys are going to go with this. Okay? Uh, you're going to start thinking gender is interchangeable. He said that 120 years before it happened. Was Abram Kuyper prophetic? Yes. In a limited sense. C.S. Lewis writes about criminal justice reform from the 1940s, and he writes about becoming slaves to a welfare state of trained scientists. As though one day this radical idea that science might be the controlling paradigm for public policy, everyone in 1940 knew that's a ridiculous and evil concept, what did we just do? Was C.S. Lewis prophetic? Yes, he was. He, they, neither of them held the office of a prophet, and neither of them learned what they learned through direct revelation. These men were prophetic because they could see where an idea was going. Okay? So they know how to follow an argument. We have people like that today, and they get just as little attention today as Lewis did, and just as little attention as Kuiper did, and in a hundred years, our great-grandkids are going to say, why did nobody listen to MacArthur and Wilson? Okay? Because these men are prophets, not Jeremiah prophets. They, just, they know how to follow an argument. They understand philosophy, they understand the times they're living in, and they, they know where these ideas go. Um, so in that sense, I would be fine to use the word prophetic. Um, if someone claims direct revelation, kind of inerrant revelation, or uh, what we have in this area, and I'll call it by name, something like listening prayer, I would push back very, very hard against it. I think that's extremely misguided. Um, prophetically, I can say where it goes, but I won't. <laughs> okay. um, it's a bad project. And so I would be, uh, if that's what's meant with prophetic, I would be very zealous to guard that word and say, no, there are no prophets today. There aren't apostles in that sense. Where does listening prayer lead to? Okay, I'll be dead by the time this happens, so I'm off the hook. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs>
Yes. Okay, so listening prayer, as it is commonly taught in this corner of Manitoba, is that if you are faced with decisions or you're faced with a circumstance and you need guidance or you need wisdom to make a decision, do I go left or do I go right? Um, how, do I, how do I ultimately answer this, this decision I'm faced with? And advocates of listening prayer would say, well, if it's not explicitly laid out in Scripture, then what we ought to do is to ask God for guidance, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what often comes back then is a dream or a picture that somebody gets, right? They get a picture of something, and then that is to be interpreted somehow as an answer to what they ought to do uh, or ought not to do, okay? And it becomes quite mystical, um, and I'll start to put up a rail on Jolyn's concern. Uh, going into this topic is always emotional because we all know people that run in different circles. Uh, and so I would certainly not want to call anyone's salvation into question. Uh, and I'll start with a story that's autobiographical. And I share the story often just so people know I'm not, what I'm not saying. February 2010, the Olympics were on, and uh, Canada was playing one evening, and I had invited a bunch of guys to come over uh, to watch the hockey game. And one of the guys isn't showing, he's not showing, he's not showing. We're all texting him, calling him, what's going on? Finally, he answers back to me, and he says, my wife just found out about my porn problem, I'm getting divorced, I'm not going to be there tonight. Okay. I leave my friends in the basement watching the hockey game. I drive over to Steinbeck, and we sit in the Tim Hortons parking lot for, I don't know, three, four hours talking. Saturday night. Sunday morning in church, somebody who would not want to identify in any way, shape, or form with listening prayer, the way I've defined it, uh, comes up to me and says, you know what, Matt, this is the weirdest thing. Last night I woke up at about 12.30, and I just knew I had to pray for you. Okay, well, what was I doing last night at 12.30? Talking with someone whose sin is causing major marriage problems. So was that God? I'd say yes. Happily, that was God. God does weird things. It's his universe. He does weird, unexplained things. So I would never want to discredit that type of thing. And we all have a story like that, or three or eight. We all have stories like that. So I would never want to discredit something like that. What I would want to discredit is this kind of approach, and this is one that was actually taught by one of the leading advocates here, is that him and his wife were making a decision on a kitchen rental if this was a good use of $30,000 or not, and they were not quite agreed on it, and so they employed the listening prayer approach, and this guy's wife, in her morning devotions, was reading in Numbers, And on the 14th day of the second month, Israel set out. 
And, do, and this was from the pulpit. And do you know what, guys? It was on Valentine's Day that she saw this. February the 14th. So he knew that was his answer to renovate the kitchen. Okay, that is an incredible abuse of scripture on many levels. Because one, Moses did not have a kitchen reno in mind, even remotely, when he wrote that. Secondly, the Hebrew calendar doesn't line up that the second month is more like our October than our February. Okay, so it's, it's an abuse of scripture. Uh, and lots of people do things, I got a picture of a flower, I got this, I got that. And, and that kind of thing I don't think is sound. I think the, the Bible instructs us to seek wisdom. And wisdom is hard-earned. Wisdom comes from making mistakes, just committing to a path of action, either it's good or it's bad. But I don't think the Bible sends us in search of an answer. It sends us in search of wisdom. Know this book so well that you can make an informed decision. But we don't need a picture or a dream to do it. That's the kind of stuff I would caution people about. This isn't taught in Scripture. Now, Human experience can become deeply emotional, deeply meaningful, and I get that. So the way I'd approach it in conversation would be different from case to case, uh, depending on where the conversation can or should go. But I wouldn't, with that, I would never want to discredit that God does supernatural things to this day. But as an office of receiving direct revelation, um, revelation from God is inerrant, it's authoritative, and it rightfully belongs here, which is different than saying God just kind of providentially moved the circumstances so that I woke up and had to go to the bathroom and I thought of Matt and I thought to pray for him. That's not divine revelation. That's just providence <laughs> getting us to where we need to go, right? So I would make that distinction. Where does it go? Um, to Alfred's question, I think what happens in listening prayer is because we don't see proper distinctions, creature-creator distinctions, essentially what we're doing is we're going inside to hear God. Okay? Uh, and it's, it is Eastern. It's mystic. Okay? Uh, listening prayer is hardly distinguishable from Eastern mi- mysticism. Okay? And I'd say it's not distinct. It's the same thing. But it's Christianized. And so what happens, where does this go? Uh, it it goes logically to pantheism, that God is in everything, everything is God, right? There's not a creature-creator distinction like we have in Christianity. If I want to hear God, where do I go? Into my prayer closet, and I get into myself. I start journaling, and I start pictures and dreams and, and whatever. And that might very well be well-meaning, but I, I think that's where it, it goes, it, I agree. But, but to push back, playing devil's advocate. I, I, <laughs> I found out this week devil's advocate was actually an official position in the Roman Catholic Church until 1984. 
If someone was up for sainthood, then the devil's advocate would uh, make the, like the prosecuting argument to the Pope for why this person should not be canonized. So devil's advocate was actually... I, <laughs> I will second that nomination. <laughs> um, but, Alfred, the Bible didn't tell you to marry Jolynn. There's not one verse in the Bible that says Alfred needs to marry Jolynn. So what do you do, Alfred? Game, set, match. That's right. Amen. And I'd say it works the same for marriage. I couldn't find a verse when Tanya and me were dating that said Matt should marry Tanya, because that verse isn't in the Bible. Here's what I can do. Is she a Christian? Yep. Okay, well, that's the first big test that's off. Okay, do we have similar ideas for the way we want to live life and raise a family? Yep, well, that's basic wisdom. You know, our, does this seem like a wise thing, right? But that's wisdom. That's not a revelation. And I will add one more thing. We're probably a bit over time here. I'll add one more thing about this, and this is a pastoral concern about going the listening prayer kind of modern prophecy route, is it is absolutely a millstone around the neck of people with a sensitive conscience. Because if God is seeking to give personal guidance in that sense, then what decisions would be exempted from that process? Right? People often apply it to the big ticket decisions. Which job do I take? Which city do I live in? Which girl do I marry? But realistically, if that's the way God gives guidance, and it's not, but if it was, how do I know which decisions are small enough that I just have permission to make? There's no test for that. And now, if I want to go to Subway or Dairy Queen for lunch, and I forget to ask God, this is a, kind of a joke, but really not. Think, put yourself in the position of someone with a sensitive conscience who genuinely wants to obey Jesus. I go to Subway or I go to DQ? <laughs> or you go buy something natural from James Acres and Sardo. So, how do we know that? The, the problem is, what if God sent somebody to Subway for me to witness to, and now their salvation is in the balance? I disobey God by forgetting to do listening prayer about where to go for lunch. I go to DQ, that person isn't there. Okay? My disobedience in my choice of where to go for lunch, because again, this doesn't work with a high view of providence. It doesn't. Because listening prayer means God might be trying to nudge us one way and we go the other way which is contrary to the biblical doctrine of providence in the first place. But now I go to the wrong place for lunch. I sit by the wrong people. I don't witness to this guy. His blood is on my hands. 
because I didn't obey God with where to go for lunch. And that might sound preposterous, but that's where this has to go. Everything is a moral decision if listening prayer is correct. Everything. Right? And, and think again. If we have a high view of providence, problem solved. I obey or I disobey, but God's providential purposes are going to work out. Um, this is a denial of providence. It's a redefinition of prophecy. And again, I, one other guy said, well, what if, what if God's not providential in that sense, and I get to the stop sign three seconds too early, I get T-boned and I die, but really God had wanted me to write that book on covenant theology, which would finally solve the baptism and the covenant debate, and now it's not written, and the church is still separated into denominations, even though God had wanted me to write this book that was going to resolve this all. That's the world of weak providence. That's the world of listening prayer. Pastorally, it's a big deal. And that's why without disparaging people who find it meaningful or have legitimate experiences, pastorally, it's a weight that no man can bear. And theologically, it rests on a lot of imprecision, is, is the way I would answer it. Did everyone hear that, what Don just said? Keith? Yeah. Right. It's revelation on demand almost. Yeah. And to Don's point, if anyone didn't hear it, to use God told me language when God has indeed not said is a violation of the third commandment, to not use the Lord's name in vain. We typically think about that when people put a swear word with God's name. But to ever use God's name in an unauthorized way is a violation of the third commandment. So God told me language is a violation of the third commandment. It is using the Lord's name in vain. Unless you have chapter and verse. If you can follow it up with chapter and verse, then God did indeed say it. There was... That's right. And you can win any argument this way. It's actually quite great. Well, God told me more recently that everything that came from your mouth is a deception from Satan. Debate's over. It's a trump card. It's not helpful in any way. There was one more hand that was up here. Howard. Did everyone hear Howard's point? We should really bring this in for a landing here. But Howard's point is, is just basically how this does quickly become a reflection of ourselves and what we want to do. And I find it incredible in church planting circles, when people get guidance this way, they almost always end up church planting in some urban setting full of beautiful young things. Very few people get told to go to Thompson and start plowing some hard soil. That's rarely the answer we get. It's usually Manhattan, 
Calgary, right? But we should bring this in for a landing. I'll pray and then let's have some coffee. Father God, thank you for our discussion this morning. Uh, Lord, I thank you for interaction and that conversations can freely flow, and I pray that that would continue. Um, that we would discuss things, questions we have, things that are important to us. Uh, Lord, and I just ask now this morning that you would guide the rest of our time. I pray that we would enjoy each other's fellowship, that we would love each other well, connect well, uh, and that you would be praised as we sing, as we pray, as we learn from your word. Lord, be glorified in every bit. Help us to love each other well. Help us to serve you well, uh, Lord, and help us to obey. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.